I'm Sharon Salzberg, by the way. Um, this is uh, Linda McDonald and Mark Coleman, and we'll be leading this retreat together. Um, as I'm sure Libby said, uh, I don't think we've ever had a major snowfall on a changeover day like this. We've had it at the beginning of retreats, but not when people were trying to leave and other people were trying to come. So this is a first. Um, and and that uh, I know those of you who arrived today, many of you had some pretty hazardous um, travel, and many people are not coming until tomorrow. And so it's going to be kind of uproarious, but um, we're so pleased that people were able to make it and will be able to make it. And as I said to the group that uh, I was with, that we were with last week, um, this so closely resembles so much of our experience of practicing in Asia in a country like Burma, for example, where we would go to meditate and there's no clear beginning or ending. There's no real retreat format. The place is there, the teachers are there, the support is there, and people go for whatever length of time suits them. So for some people that's seven days, other people it's seven months, and that means every day has people coming and going and coming and going. And it just forms part of the, uh, the whole feeling tone of being there. Um, and so here we are, seemingly replicating it in our own way. <clears throat> this retreat, as you know, uh, is particularly dedicated to the practice of loving kindness, to the experience of love and compassion for ourselves, uh, for others in a variety of relationships, and ultimately as an expression of the heart toward all beings everywhere. But as a retreat, it really involves <clears throat> the development of many different kinds of skills of the mind. And it's a little bit odd, actually, sometimes to think of love as a skill. Um, and in some of the time I've been with uh, recently with the Dalai Lama and some of the people doing research on meditation, that has been brought up as a concept, that compassion may be a skill we can learn, and that is considered quite a revolutionary concept. Um, but I think that through the experience of meditation, that's something that one can can understand, that learning to use our awareness in a different way, learning to see ourselves in a different way, learning to see the world in a different way is is part of developing this skill of responding, not out of old habits and fears and ways we've held back, but out of a space of, of connection and real care for ourselves and for one another. So some of the skills we're going to really focus on even before the specific development of loving kindness and compassion are things like concentration and mindfulness. Concentration is considered to be, in a way it's like the gathering of our attention and our energy. Most of us know, either through meditation or some other form of introspection, or just through life, we know that we're pretty scattered, that we're fragmented in different ways or... Um, maybe in a big picture, we're really fragmented. We might experience ourselves as being one kind of person at work and a very different person at home. Or maybe we're filled with loving kindness and compassion for all beings as long as we're all alone. But once we're with others, it doesn't really work that well. Or maybe we're fine when we're with others, but we're quite afraid to be alone. So our lives are kind of fragmented in the big picture. And then in the immediate sense, our attention is always flying off somewhere. We sit down to think something through or fulfill a task or uh, to really contemplate something, and it's not long before we are gone. We're just gone. So the process of concentration is, first of all, acknowledging that, realizing that that's 
not like a personal fault um, or something that cannot be changed, but that's like a habit of the mind. And so we realize we've become distracted, we've gotten fragmented, we bring our attention back to the present moment and to whatever object we've chosen. That may last 10 seconds. Okay, we bring it back again. And that process of gathering our energy and coming together is the process of learning the art of concentration. Concentration in the Buddhist tradition is considered um, to have a twofold fruit. One is it's considered to be the path of power or empowerment because that's a lot of energy that could be available to us, but it's flying all over the place. We're like flinging it away. But as we gather it in and we gather it in, it does become available to us. And we experience the the power of that. And it's also considered a path of healing. Because just as, like in that movement of my hands, the energy's coming together, it's a movement toward integration, toward wholeness, which is healing. So that we don't experience that kind of fragmentation of our being, but we're centered. So that is the, the power of concentration. And then there's mindfulness. It's being present, being aware, knowing what we're experiencing as we're experiencing it, being in touch. And not just knowing what's going on, but the, the particular nature of mindfulness is a quality of awareness that is not distorted by bias. So that we are open to what we're experiencing and our perception isn't filtered by the habits of the past or our fears or our desires. We can experience whatever's going on clearly and directly. And so those two uh, real skills of the mind form the basis for being able to unfold the process of loving kindness and compassion. And and that's what we're going to focus on um, for this first day here coming together. It's always really intense to begin a retreat because the energy, physical, emotional, all of those levels that one has expended in getting here is usually quite a lot. And then suddenly you're here. And we're no longer engaging in quite the same level of stimulation that we're used to. When we first opened the center, which, as many of you know, was almost exactly 30 years ago, we moved in on Valentine's Day, 1976. Soon after we opened, a friend came by and sat here, and and he wrote a kind of mock brochure for IMS, Um, which I've always treasured. It said things like, um, come to IMS and drink all the tea you could ever want and uh, get to use institutional cutlery and things like that. And it was very funny. Um, And then he had as the motto on this mock brochure, it's better to do nothing than to waste your time. And I really liked that. I wanted to keep it on our literature, actually. It's better to do nothing than to waste your time. Because wasting our time, of course, is like wasting our lives. It's better to do nothing. But it's a special kind of nothing. It doesn't mean, you know, just going to sleep and and being dull and uh, inert and turned off. It's a very special kind of nothing (laughs) where we attune to simplicity. We can pay attention to the small things. We're not so distracted. We're not so busy. We're not responsible to others, actually, except in the way we're responsible to one another here. But if we devote a day to being more aware, that's a day well spent. Even though if you were to call home at the end of the day, you'd have nothing to say. I felt some breaths, you know. 
It's better to do nothing than to waste your time. So it's a big adjustment, generally speaking, to learn to do some nothing. And we feel that very often, especially in the beginning. It it takes a while to really settle in, uh, to feel more present, to attune to that kind of subtlety, not to be so dependent on intensity as we generally are in order to feel alive. So we come together in a retreat environment, which is really like an immersion course. It's not meant to be a model of a way of life forever, but it's like an intensive training where the most extraordinary thing is you don't have to worry and you don't have to prove anything to anybody and you don't have to do anything You don't have to have like a great accomplishment. All you need to do is be cultivating these skills. So it is really a tremendous luxury. One of the um, kind of hallmarks of that is the practice of silence. Even though there are so many opportunities to speak to the teachers and... um, you know, if there's an essential communication, but really not to be relating to one another in the ways that we ordinarily do, perhaps, but rather to be making a friend of silence. It's really, it's so unusual for us. Many times when people look at a retreat, you know, if they haven't um, done one before, the idea of being silent is like the single most daunting, troubling inhibiting possibility about the retreat. People say things like, um, I know I'm not going to last all seven days, or my partner said you'll never last seven days, or somebody said once they're taking a betting pool at my office to see how long it can be before I break silence. You know, like It just seems like such a difficult thing, but Almost always, in looking back, people point to it as the single most beautiful aspect of being on retreat, because it's like for once in our lives, we can just be ourselves. We don't have to present ourselves to anybody else as special or interesting or troubled or complex. We can turn inward and be with our own experience and trust our own experience for ourselves, for itself. So the retreat environment is all about qualities, characteristics, possibilities like that, to turn away from the normal, habitual ruts we may be in to immerse ourselves in an atmosphere that's so supportive and so designed to help us go within and have this sense of discovery. This is from uh, the poet William Stafford who wrote, The things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk. Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. The things you know before you hear them, this is you. And this is the reason that you are in the world. So we come here, we, we gather together to enrich ourselves and to enliven our experience. The retreat is designed to be as practical an experience as possible. It's really not about uh, Buddhism per se, although the, the particular techniques that we use were taught by the Buddha. And, uh, you know, for me, it's like the language, the metaphors, the imagery that I'm most familiar with are all rooted in the Buddhist tradition. But we come together not in the sense of of trying even to understand Buddhism, let alone become a Buddhist or identify with that, but rather we come together for the possibility of that very direct and practical experience 
of a variety of techniques that we explore, that we, we experience for ourselves. When we first moved in, we had endless debates about everything. This was really a whole new kind of thing to do, a, a meditation center in the West, run by Westerners who'd been to Asia but weren't in Asia anymore. Um, and those of you who, who have been here or, or who noticed the, uh, the word metta up on the front of the building, when we first bought the building, it was owned by the Catholic Church. It was an novitiate run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and it said, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, up above the doorway. And so here we were in February, very cold, and we got some poor guy to get up on a very tall ladder, and we said, move around those letters, would you, until you can come up with something that means something about us. So he got up on this ladder, and he's fooling around with the letters, and there was Meta. M-E-T-T-A, which is a Pali word, Pali being the language of the original Buddhist text and means loving kindness or love. So then we had these discussions. Should we leave metta on the front of the building? We're not in Asia anymore. It's not an English word. Nobody understands it. Why should we have a word no one understands? But then, And so it was a, um, a very fierce debate. And the view that I held, which was that it, it should stay up there, was the one that prevailed, I'm very pleased to say. Um, and the reason that I like it so much, or a reason I like it so much, is, is that when people call for directions and whoever's on the phone says, well, it's a large brick building with white pillars, and it's got this word up on top, meta. And then they say, what does that mean? And we get to say, that means love, or that means friendship, which is the literal translation of the word. That means loving kindness. We had similar debates about Buddhas, because we said, after all, people come here, as we had been taught so strongly, not for exposure to a dogma or a set of beliefs, but in order to use those skills Almost, almost a kind of technology of the mind, of the heart, to use them for their own experience, for their own discovery. So, you know, while we honor the Buddha and we respect the Buddha and uh, have that kind of feeling about the tradition, um, it's so much not about becoming a Buddhist. You know, should we have what we called Buddhas in public places? And that was a big, fierce debate for a long time. Should we have Buddhas in public places? But in the end, we did, I think largely, frankly, because Jack Cornfield, who was here, had an attic full of Buddhas. Uh, he'd been in the Peace Corps in Thailand, and he'd accumulated all of these Buddhas. And so he really wanted to do something with them. And so he brought them here, and we spread them out. And here we are. And, and of course, it's a very beautiful feeling, too, because it is, it is a way of... Um, respecting the uh, centuries, really, that these techniques have been kept intact and, and transmitted um, to this present day. But really it is about ourselves in the best possible sense. And in order to, to maximize that uh, truth, we really need to give ourselves some time to get through that often very difficult adjustment period to more fully arrive, to make the experiment with these varieties of different techniques, to see the development of those skills, it's really the most practical kind of experience that, that we can hope for. So I'm going to um, turn this over to Mark, who's going to formally begin the retreat, and uh, then we'll have a chance for just a short sitting. And as I said, we're, we're going to focus um, throughout tomorrow on 
uh, sort of the foundation of mindfulness and concentration and then move more formally into the loving-kindness beginning tomorrow night. So I would also like to welcome you and those of you particularly who've been traveling through the snow. A little adventure to get here, I'm sure. So um, I'm just going to say a few words uh, about the containers that we have uh, to hold the retreat. And uh, they are the taking of refuge and the taking of the five precepts. The, um, the refuge is a both a, can be seen like as a practice and also as a way of reflecting on what it is we're putting at the center of our attention, the center of our focus or our lives. And so when we come on retreat, we take refuge in something very different than we normally do, perhaps in our lives, which are busier with work and family and various other things. When we retreat, we're putting uh, the center of our attention the refuges of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I'll say a little about those. Taking refuge in the Buddha, again, as Sharon said, uh, we're not here to uh, proselytize or do a mass conversion to Buddhism. Some of you may ascribe to being a Buddhist. Taking refuge in the Buddha is really, um, can be seen, can be taken on a lot of different levels. It could be taking refuge in the historical Buddha, the fact that he was, a, he was an ordinary man who, through his own practice, attained full realization. We can take refuge in that possibility of awakening that he embodied. And we, too, through our practice, can attain liberation, can wake up through our practice. So it's taking refuge in both the external historical Buddha, but it's also, I think more importantly, taking refuge in our own capacity to wake up, our own own capacity to develop an awakened heart. And we all have that nature. We all have that potential. We all have the seed of Buddha nature. So we're taking refuge in that this week. We're also taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma has many meanings. It means the truth, means the law, means the way things are. So we're taking refuge in the truth of our experience, the truth of what's happening in this moment. Most of the time, we're trying to change and fix and struggle with the reality of this moment rather than taking refuge in it. So here we're learning how to, and especially in the first couple of days where we're learning just to arrive and to be fully present to reflect on what it would be to take refuge in how things are, to not be in contention with things. It also means we use the support of the Dharma teachings, the Dharma teachings of the Buddha, mindfulness, loving-kindness, and the support of silence. The more we uh, cultivate mindfulness, cultivate clarity and compassion, loving-kindness, the deeper we end up taking refuge in the way things are. And then lastly, we take refuge in the Sangha. We take refuge in both the community that we practice in here. There will be upwards of a hundred people sitting and walking, cultivating loving-kindness. It's a beautiful field to be living in. You know, we create a kind of a temple, a monastery for this week. And we partly come together to practice because it's so much more supportive to have the support of people sitting with a strong intention. So I invite you to really um, feel nourished by the support of the Sangha here. It's really a a beautiful thing that so many people come together with a like-minded intention to Cultivate love, to open the heart, to wake up. And it's such a rare thing that we come together like this. 
It also means taking refuge in uh, what's called the Arya Sangha, the Noble Sangha. In a way, appreciating the lineage that this tradition has, that this practice comes from, that we are here because of thousands of years of people practicing, waking up, teaching, passing on the beauty of this practice, this, this lineage. So we take refuge in awakened ones, teachers. And then the practice of the five precepts is something that's also very fundamental to the retreat practice, to living in a monastery. It's something that's really one of the foundations of practice. Um, Again, we're living in a community, we're creating community, and we want to create the conditions that, that, that are most supportive to practice, to meditate. And so uh, the taking of the ethical guidelines is a, is a way of creating safety, container, um, kind of a wholesome field in which we can do our practice. And the, 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 guide, the, the ethical guidelines are really based around the first guideline, the practice of refraining from killing, the practice of non-harming, of relating to everyone, including ourselves, with a spirit of loving-kindness, with a spirit of care. And I don't imagine anybody's going to be killing anybody on this retreat. Maybe that might arise in the mind sometimes. Um, but we're extending this this wish, this this sense of goodwill to all life. Bugs, critters. There's not that many this time of year that will be biting you or crawling over you. But to hold to hold that spirit of embracing everybody, including ourselves, with a sense of care, with a sense of kindness. And the second guideline is to refrain from taking anything which hasn't been freely given, freely offered. So again, it's respecting each other's space, our property, not checking out a nice zafu just because it looks comfy. You know, respecting each other's things, respecting things here at IMS. For those of you who are new here, you'll notice there's no locks on the doors. There's a spirit of trust that gets created when we practice this guideline. It's a very rare thing. I just I live in a neighborhood where we just had a burglary up the street. And it's so interesting to see how one little action causes so much fear and uh, sense of contractedness. And so we can kind of let that guard in this down here. It's a very safe space to be. And the third guideline is to refrain from sexual activity. The emphasis on these retreats is to really bring our attention, our energy inward. To use the energy the Chan was talking about that we can often fritter away in our lives to bring some harmony, to some focus, some uh, streamlining of the energy. And one of the energies that we can expend a lot of energy in, (laughs) is sexuality. Thinking about it, planning, uh, flirting, all different ways that we can uh, engage in that activity, which is fine of itself in the the right context. But on the retreat, the emphasis is one of channeling that energy inward, keeping it focused really with ourselves. The fourth guideline is uh, the practice of, in our lives it would be the practice of uh, right speech, truthful speech. Here we're practicing noble silence. Noble silence, as Sharon mentioned, it's a beautiful, powerful support for our practice. It's the refraining from conversation, particularly those of you who travel with friends or partners, to really, really encourage you to commit to this guideline, to really come here and be on retreat in a spirit of solitude. 
in the context of community, but really being with yourself. It also, it also is the practice of noble silence, which is uh, paying attention to the inner noise. Often the noisiest place anywhere is our mind. So noticing how we can bring a spirit of silence to our inner life. And lastly, a guideline to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind, that cause heedlessness. So refraining from alcohol, from drugs, anything that causes us to lose clarity. We're cultivating wakefulness here. So that doesn't include anybody who's taking medication for various reasons. Please continue to take that. So rather than chant them, we'll be chanting the refuges and precepts in Pali every morning. This evening what I want to do is I'll just repeat the refuges and the precepts in English and then just invite you to reflect on them for yourself. See what they mean for you. They're an invitation to practice. I take refuge in the Buddha. take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Five ethical guidelines. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the ethical guideline to refrain from killing and harming any life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the ethical guideline to refrain from taking anything which hasn't been freely offered. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the ethical guideline to refrain from all sexual activity on this retreat. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the ethical guideline to practice noble silence. knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. I undertake the ethical guideline to to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. Again, just like to welcome you here, and I look forward to working with you over the next seven days. Thank you. So maybe you might want to take a little standing break. So we'll stand for a couple of minutes, stretch a little before we're going to sit.
as you're ready to find a good posture where your spine can remain straight, not rigid. And taking a few minutes to just settle in. Settle into your spot, your kind of nest in the hall. And a few minutes to just really settle into the body. Into the stillness. And into the silence. And sitting very quietly, listening at first to sounds as they appear and disappear. Opening to the more distinct sounds, the sound of my voice. Also to the more subtle sounds in the room and outside. Staying in the simplicity of hearing, if you can, not naming the sound, not trying to figure out what is making it, simply hearing. Notice the effortlessness with which you're aware of the sounds as they appear and disappear. There's really nothing special to do. We just sit and remain undistracted. Sounds arise and pass away and are known effortlessly. And in just the same way that you notice sounds as they appear, now direct attention to notice the sensations of the breath as it appears. Certain feelings or sensations of the in and out breath at the nose, or the sensations of the movement of the chest or the abdomen. In the same way that sounds simply appeared, the sensations of the breath simply appear. And notice how easily sounds and sensations of the breath appear, and the mind is aware of them, like reflections in a mirror. Sounds appear, the breath appears, The mind is not disturbed. It is simply aware. And begin to feel where the sensations of the breath are most clear for you. Do they appear most clearly at the nose, the air passing? Or are the sensations most clearly felt in the movement of the chest or of the abdomen? Simply let the mind rest in that place of awareness and letting each breath arise in its own unique way. Then paying particular attention to the differing lengths of breath, textures, temperatures, each breath unique 
and connecting with the very beginning of each breath and sustaining the attention. Just that single in-breath, just that single rising movement. Letting the breath appear effortlessly, receiving the sensations, and knowing it effortlessly. It can also be extremely helpful to use a gentle mental noting to help to aim the attention as we learn to remain undisturbed, undistracted. We can make a gentle note of in and out, or rising and falling, concurrent with the experience. using the breath where it's easiest to locate as your primary meditation object, the harbor or the anchor to stabilize and steady the awareness. And for a few minutes with your own rhythm, simply notice any other predominant experience that comes into the foreground, taking note of the differing appearances as they come, noticing their impermanent nature, maybe different sensations or thoughts or emotions or images different mind states, each of which may be pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. And practicing what is sometimes called the reign of mindfulness, recognizing what's happening, accepting, investigating, and not identifying, not getting lost into the content. And then when the particular experience is no longer in the foreground, no longer predominant, letting your attention again come back to the breath to receive the sensations. And if you get confused or don't know what to notice, just abiding in that safe harbor of the breath.
If there's a lot of thinking in the mind, it's not a problem. Just might be a signal to use the gentle noting to keep the mind focused, keep connecting and sustaining attention. Just this breath, just this moment, As we end this short sitting, really offering yourself a genuine sense of appreciation and acknowledgement and thankfulness for all the effort and perseverance, the willingness that you've brought to this day of arriving for many of you, or these days of being here for many more of you appreciating the ways you've supported others through your practice and silence, and appreciating the ways that you've cared for yourself through your practice and your silence. Taking a moment to really appreciate that. And also extending that appreciation to everyone around you, to everyone in the room who has really supported you through this practice and their commitment, through their loving kindness and sensitivity. And to all of those at IMS who are serving us so heartfully, so carefully, in so many ways, making it possible for us to rest, to be at ease, and to practice diligently, appreciating their loving kindness, their generosity. And extending our caring to the friends not yet here, May they be safe in their travels. And then dedicating all of our practice today to the well-being, to the happiness, to the peace of all beings, that whatever benefits may come from our practice, may they contribute to a greater understanding for the end of suffering, and division, and that whatever benefits come from our practice, may they truly contribute to oneness, to kindness, and to peace.
This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on February 16, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.